Welcome to the PR Moment podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. Welcome to the latest PMO podcast and today on the show we're chatting to Kirsty Leeton who's founder and group CEO of Milk and Honey PR. Um, this is a, a, the new regular format um, where we um, every now and again we chat to leaders um, within UK the public relations sector and our guests share their in hindsight secrets that they wish they'd known at the start of their careers. Today, as I mentioned, we're chatting to Kirsty Leeton who is founder and group CEO of Milk and Honey PR. Milk and Honey PR has a fee income of five million pounds and offices in London, New York, Singapore and Munich. Milk and Honey launched in 2016 and has about 50 people working for it. Before we launch, I've got some huge news. The Piermont Awards 2024 are now open. There are some exciting changes this year. We've tweaked the categories, we've refined the entry form, um, and with no additional fee, we've launched a regional champion scheme um, so that we can reach the best work right across the UK. Do check out the Piermont Awards microsite, piermontawards.com. I should say before we start, thank you so much to the PRM podcast sponsors, the PRCA, and, and thank you so also to our data and insight partners, Meltwater, for supporting the show. Kirsty, I think we first met at a PR Week forum in Chepstow in about 2003, so it's lovely to get you on the show at last. Kirsty, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Very great to be here. Um, well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Now, lots to cover. Um but before we delve into your your in hindsight secrets, um, let's just just talk about milk and honey a little bit, shall we? Because it's it's an interesting story. Uh, as I mentioned in my intro, um, you followed a, an international model. I think it's fair to say quite early in in the milk and honey story. Uh, what's the thinking behind that? Why did you decide to do that? Well, I've been incredibly fortunate in my career thus far that I've had an opportunity to work internationally. And for me, I really, really enjoy the opportunity to learn from different people around the world, to understand um, and have input from different cultures, different lived experiences. And I think it helps us better represent more international markets. And so, so that's been exciting for me. Um, so when we got to a certain size, and for us, it was getting to about 20 people here in the UK, then that was when it started to make sense to think about international exports expansion. Also, to be honest with you, although I've always wanted to grow the business, I didn't want any one office to be more than 40 people. Because to my mind, culture really starts changing around that time. And I wanted always to be able to work with with individuals rather than uh, rather than people of a given level. And so for me, I don't really want any one of our offices to be more than 40 people. And so that rather necessitates opening more offices. Right. And uh, was it, I mean, we talked about it a bit before, the UK market, it, we've all benefit from that, right? It's pretty competitive. Um, uh, was it that it was part of your strategy to take that that infrastructure uh, and that, that that business model in the UK and, and then try and replicate that elsewhere? Well, I would love to say that I'm, I'm that well considered, um, but to be honest with you, the first, <laughs> the first um, international office that we opened was uh, a tantalising 11 um, time zones away. And that was actually on the back of one of our board directors here in the UK moving to Australia. So rather than losing her, uh, she kind of went out and, and opened in, in Australia for us in, in Sydney. Now, the timing for that wasn't impeccable. It was 2020, just as... Sydney was on fire and then had a, 
a kind of a plague of lotus. And then, of course, there was COVID, which then closed the country down for two years. So it wasn't, it wasn't perfect timing. But actually, we were up and running in Sydney for about 18 months before Caroline went on maternity leave. And doing pretty well, profitable throughout, um, but we just couldn't find the right team to to lead in in her absence, so we had to pop that on pause. Do you ever sleep? I mean, oddly enough, I, uh, uh, as you know, I we have PR moment in India, and and many years ago now, ten years ago, my plan was sort of launch franchise models of PR moment around the world, um, and it was too early for us in in hindsight. So I I you know we 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 India's been great and it's really worked worked really well, but I, I put the handbrake on 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 the other areas, and I'm pleased I did. But one thing that someone pointed out to me was that Ben, you're never going to sleep because you have you have these businesses all around the world, and you must have that as well. Um, and, you know, some firms, you know, the big, big PR firms have infrastructure and people to manage that. But how do you deal with that personally? Because you know, you're in you're in, a, I don't know, you're in a lot of time zones, right? Yeah, we are in a lot of time zones. Um, I'm also enjoying the full throes of menopause at the moment, which affects my sleep even further. So so um, I'm usually awake. Um, so that's no problem. I think I think <laughs> it was tough trying to manage a first offer office in Australia because that really is so many time zones away I mean they're, they're almost the exact opposite you know yeah, you, you picked a brutal top. one to, to start with there didn't you yeah yeah but the, the second one that we opened up was uh, a year later in in New York and that was much easier uh, much much easier we were also working with slightly more senior individuals in the New York office when we opened there as well which again makes it a little bit easier um so, so actually, it's really it's it's not too difficult to be honest with you. So it doesn't, listen, extend, like... it doesn't extend the working day too much. I usually start about seven and finish about seven or eight. So I thought you were going to say midnight then, but yeah, great. <laughs> um, go on, I love it that um, I, I love the stories when 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 Brits go around the world and 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 you know give it a go. Um, so just talk us because you've opened them quite rapidly. Just give give listeners a a. Um, a bit of a chronological timeline of of um, what what you've done because there is a pattern to it. You seem to have opened up a, a, an office sort of every every twelve to eighteen months or so over over the recent periods. But just talk us through that. So we opened up in London first of all in January seventeen, uh, and then in in nineteen we opened. Uh, I went on the on the Goldman Sachs ten thousand small businesses course, and that uh, thank you very much. Goldman Sachs is complete paid for by by Goldman Sachs and, and fundamentally what it is it's part of their CSR program to accelerate smaller business to become become scale-ups and to be a little braver and that actually seeded a lot of the thoughts around internationalization and being brave and being prepared to, to make some mistakes to to focus on growth um so in 2020 when Caroline wanted to move to Sydney we thought well let's do that I mean she was a client director at the time so whilst relatively senior um you know perhaps less senior than some of the country leads that we're utilizing now she did a great job really great job but when she went on mat leave as I said we couldn't find the right person to lead in her uh, in her absence then in 21 we opened in New York um and that was in the May time frame we uh for that, again, it was interesting because obviously it was still the, the middle of COVID and my business partner that we've opened up with in, in the US, I'd never actually met him in person before. So that was always kind of like quite strange. What, what's but, his name? 
Paul Cohen. Right. Paul Cohen. He was uh, he was previously at Ketchum, um, and a phenomenally skilled individual. Very, 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 very international in his thought. How, process. how did you find him? Um, actually, through our wonderful, friendly UK network here in the UK. So I, I found him through Rob Cartwright. Right. Um, and. Uh, yeah, and that allowed us to. So Paul and I had a, a few conversations. He was coming out from from Ketchum, and so we thought, great. Well, let's let's give it a go. We we've, we've got very similar views on the world, very similar values. But I knew that I needed somebody that was uh, embedded in and connected to the culture of the US to make that work. Yeah. Um, and it's been an absolute flyer. He did he did a million in revenue in his first full calendar year. So really did a great job. But that's that's an important lesson, isn't it? Because so often you see the you, you see people like who's my, who's my best person in London. Let's put him in New York. And oddly enough, it was a conversation. I, I didn't have too many he conversations with Michael Heseltine when when I was at uh, a Haymarket, but that was one of them. Um, his one of his mistakes early on when he launched PR Week over in America was to take his, his top man in 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 London and try and put him in New York. But it doesn't it didn't work? And and that's an important lesson, isn't it? You need you need people who understand the local market. Very much so. You need people that and also you know. You'd think that there's a lot of commonalities between the US and the UK, but we're separated by a common language and we don't mean the same things. We don't communicate in the same way. And so I think having having a, an American, but an American with a very global mindset um, has has worked phenomenally well. So that's that's been really great. And then a year after that, in the following May, in uh, we then opened up in Munich um, and that was through an ex colleague of mine, Manuel Huttel, who we used to work together at, at Wagner Edstrom, as was, WE as is now, he uh, he approached me about opening up in in Germany. Um, and he is a, just a brilliant, brilliant human being, lots of fun, very commercially savvy, brilliant at building teams. Um, and so we did that and he's grown that team now to almost 10, uh, which has been fantastic. And again, really off to the races. Which is which is great to see. Um, then following on from that, the next one was in Singapore, and that was again this year. So we um, Singapore was opened in kind of summer of of this year of twenty three. Twenty three, yeah, still twenty twenty three, Kirsty. I know, We're I know. I had to think about that for a minute. So yeah, and that's uh, Maylin Wong again. Maylin and I used to work together at uh, at Wagner Edstrom. She was my um, kind of new biz director, effectively client development director for APAC um, when I worked at Wagner Edstrom. Um, and she's again fantastic. But actually, she'd left communications and had gone into. Um, a kind of a startup world herself where she had put a wellness um, app together effectively um, and had done very well there and had kind of um, sold on. So what was great there is, is I knew that she was very commercially savvy. I knew that she was a brilliant marketeer, but I, but she'd also then kind of proved her chops from a, from a kind of being an entrepreneur perspective and um, successfully delivering there. So again, Maylin and I started speaking and that all moved quite quickly. And right now we're toying with the idea and in conversations uh, with potentially um, a, a, an amazing contact in, in Dubai. 
This right. time, not through the Wagner Edstrom <laughs> relationship. But is is it? Have you deliberately, you know, d- done it roughly an office a year? Is that in your back of your head? You know, there's probably I don't suggest that's a formal. I must launch an office a year, but is that kind of what? Because it takes a year to get it organised and find people and and get it up and running, or or is that just how it's worked out? So we do have a five year rolling plan, and we've just uh, we've just actually finalized doing the next five-year rolling plan and although it's not specific in where in exactly pinpointing where we say we want the office to be we are planning to continue expanding so we are looking to open more offices in Europe more in Asia and more in the Americas um so I would imagine that I mean America is a huge market for us and so um at the moment we've only got one office in in New York so it makes sense for us to open on the west coast potentially look at um Canada as well so we're um we're keeping a, an eye out there but it's always all of our expansion has been on the back of finding the right people um actually slightly bizarrely and slightly against probably what most other people um or agency owners do none of it has been on the back of client demand and so that I just try to work so when go on just talk us through some lessons on that not just lessons about you how looking people out there who are who are thinking of of following a, a similar international path and quite a few independent British PR firms are uh, and are that you know that's that's work in progress and remains work in progress where what, you know what, what what has worked for you how have you you've obviously a key bit is find the right people who are experts in that local market beyond that you know all that all that boring stuff about i don't know setting up a business in a, in a in a foreign country and all that i mean how have you that can all take time and and you can uh, an error or two early doors can make can make things a bit more complicated further down the line yeah, okay, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, the, so for me, some of the key learnings are really think about what amount of equity it makes sense to share with whomever the leader is going to be in, in that market and really, really think it through. Um, but that's an important ta- point, right? So you you give you give the leaders in those respective markets skin in the game. Is a, yes, a, a, like- very much so. And it's for a number of different reasons. You know, sometimes it's kind of, if you bring somebody in with 20, 30 years experience, potentially, as as we have, you're not necessarily going to be able to open up with a with a the a crackerjack salary. So therefore, there needs to be there needs to be other component parts that you can that you can put together. Um, but also think about you know really test their uh, you know their alignment to your values. So for us, bravery is 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 a big one of our values. Um, and energy, passion, loyalty, respect. And so again, just make sure, and obviously everyone's everyone's translation of those values is, is personal to them. But I think if you want to be ambitious and you want to be brave, then you need to just make sure that you're testing their tolerance for, for making mistakes, because mistakes absolutely will happen, things that you can predict and things that you absolutely can't predict. Um, and then and and just kind of helping them feel confident with that. Um, I think it's absolutely key to your point that you have somebody in the local market that truly gets it and ideally is a bit of a, a known entity um, because, again, you're looking to build up quite quickly and to, to grab some momentum. You need to stand out and have something that's different. And for us, the, um, the B Corps offer and the work that we're doing and the work that we do around ESG and purpose in particular 
um, really makes a point of difference. So currently, and you know, I say currently because there's lots of. I'm delighted to say there's lots of new agencies being being accredited with uh, with um, through B Lab almost every day, which is great to see. Um, but currently, we're the highest scoring B Corp um, comms agency in the world. But also with a score of 154.2, we're also the highest scoring B Corp in Germany and in Singapore. So. Um, so again, that creates a real kind of point of, of difference where we can where we can um, stand out there. We wanted to also make sure that we were working in democracies. I appreciate that uh, Dubai doesn't necessarily fit into that exactly, but it's still a relatively safe um, organized um, country. We wanted to make sure that we were going into countries that had a talent pool, a talent base to be able to pull from. We wanted to be able to go into countries that uh, that had a regional impact, not just a local impact. Um, and we wanted to go, and, and our business plan really looks at investing in, so we're sector agnostic, but our growth plan is around um, sectors that are aligned to the kind of G20, um, you know, kind of area development areas. And so, because we know that in time over the next kind of five, 10 years, that those are the areas that it's going to be easier to get external investment for. Those are the areas that um, that um, governments and lawmakers are going to make it easier to operate and do better within. Um, and so that's kind of where our, our focus lies. Right. And just, um... We've got loads to go through, but I just want you mentioned your your Goldman Sachs course. Mm. Um, a few people I've spoken to on this show have talked about that. Just um, give us give us an overview. How long is it? Um, it's obviously free. Uh, I just uh, w w how did it how did it make Kirsty better? So it's called Goldman Sachs um, Ten Thousand Small Businesses. Um, I came across it on LinkedIn, actually, when they were looking for new cohorts. So effectively, what they do is they are looking for fast growing businesses and the program is there to help accelerate. So it is a it's either 12 or 16 week course. Um, it is aligned for me. Um, all of the all of the training that I did was at um at Oxford University, at the um, Oxford Sayad University, so that, so that was great and really exciting. They take, there's all sorts of different participants, so in my cohort there were farmers that were kind of expanding what they were doing, they were um, people that run, you know, chains of gyms, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a real mixed bag. Um, and then on the course they go over economics, um, financial planning, HR, marketing, brand, um, quality best practice, uh, international planning, um, growth mindsets, et cetera, et cetera. So I found it incredibly, incredibly helpful. It is something of an undertaking. It does kind of demand quite a bit of time during that time. So it's uh, so there's about two afternoons of lectures a week and then across the the 12 or 16 weeks sorry I should know I, I'm afraid I can't remember it was 12 okay, or 16. just just roughly you don't you know not, not there, are, there were three three day residentials in Oxford right okay so so it's a commitment yes um but clearly you you found that useful and that uh, and part of your strategy now has come out of that course 
Yes. Well, I think what, so for me, I was incredibly lucky that I've been through some amazing courses previously. So lots, a, a lot of it, perhaps other than the economic side of things, which I found really, really interesting and useful, um, a lot of it was more of a refresh. However, it did persuade me to be much braver. Um, and then you get an ongoing growth expert to work with that's there beyond the beyond the course to, to kind of help keep you in the right direction to connect you through to uh, potential government grants to connect you through to the Department of Trade and the like. Um, so it's yeah, it was really, it was it was really, it was really eye opening, I found it. Brilliant. Uh, now moving on to your career and your in the hindsight lessons, three of your pre milk and honey jobs were uh, at Wagnerstrom, um, which is, as you say, called called WE. I never know whether it's WE or WE, but anyway. We'll get them on to, 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 to tell us. Hudson Sandler and Edelman. Um, and I, when, I, when you were chatting about that in the pre-show call, I, I had a moment. I thought, ah, hang on. If you sort of combine all of those three, you, you sort of end up with a, a strategy that looked a bit like milk and honey. Is that fair to say? Or, or, or is that me just thinking about things too much? I think that's I think that's absolutely fair to say I mean um so I I've kind of done throughout my career like five years five years five years five years five years um and um Edelman was my first kind of more senior role so I went in as uh associate director and kind of heading up the the UK uh technology team that was a long time ago that was three children and my children are <laughs> left university now so that was a long time ago um so um I learned an awful lot there and again they had some amazing policies and processes um and you can see what they were trying to achieve with them but some of the some of the delivery wasn't always quite there um but obviously they've you know they've continued to grow and expand and, and rocket um on fire since then so they've obviously kind of managed to correct some of those pieces. I loved my time there. It was it was really brilliant. I learned an awful lot, um, especially around kind of pitching and really getting getting hot at that. Um, I then moved to uh, Wagner Eggs from as was from there and took over uh, as as head of technology, which sounds slightly more grand than it was because there was no technology team. The technology team was me, so I was head of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so but at the time uh Wagner Edson was rather new into the UK so I think I was employee number 30 right. uh, but 29 of the 30 worked on Microsoft so um so I was going to put and your team management was pretty good at that point <laughs> yeah, exactly I had a really brilliant inspiring team that just did exactly what they were told <laughs> um so I was then I was then uh, working with the wonderful Claire Lamata, who was the um, the European president at the time, and she's really brilliant. And she gave me loads and loads of opportunities. So she let me. So I, as I built out the technology team, she then let me build out the consumer marketing team. Um, she then kind of put me into a role of European uh, director that allowed me to kind of work with the healthcare team, with the public affairs team, uh, with the, the Studio D, uh, the kind of content and digital team as was. Um, I then started spending more time in some of the other countries, in Germany and in France. Um, and then she promoted me again to a very exalted title of Global Head of Client Development, which effectively was sales and marketing. Um, mm -hmm. And again, just kind of said, okay, we'll work it out. 
So I had a team of just me and my EA, who's still my EA now, um, Petrina Marks, and um, nobody reported into me and uh, and she said, just work it out. So I managed to wheedle my way onto the APAC board, the European board and the North American board so I could get in with the right people. Um, and then, and then because I had no power over anybody, I couldn't ask anybody to do anything. I had to kind of just influence and negotiate and cajole. So um, you're good at influencing, Kirsty. I reckon. I think I learned a lot of it in the, in that time, and, and that was it, it. Was really brilliant. And so again, there was a huge reframing of what I saw my job as being and how to go about doing it. So I'm eternally grateful for. Claire Lamarta giving me that opportunity. I then found myself kind of spending a lot of time on planes um, with a relatively small small family uh, or small kids. So um, so I, I then I then kind of um, stepped back from that, even though that was probably the most the most enjoyable job prior to milk and honey, obviously, that I that I'd had. Um, and then wasn't really sure what to do so I was uh, I was kind of consulting a little bit but when my husband found me doing daytime tv shows he kicked me out of the house and said get back to work and do something proper so then I took the opportunity to to really try something different again uh so I started off doing some new rev consulting for Hudson Sandler which at the time was part of the Huntsworth group yeah I didn't see that coming when you ended up there I was like really but it it, it obviously gave you really good insight because that's sort of where you've you've taken milk and honey's work isn't it you've gone up you've gone up the, the, the chain a little bit towards corporate and presumably you got that insight at Hudson Sandler I did I did I mean I'm I'm I have a very low boredom threshold and a very high kind of curiosity so I love to look at things and go how do you do that like how do you talk to that community what's different about how you approach working with celebrities or what's different about how you approach working with um, capital markets um, and what what was amazing that I really enjoyed during my time there and again I was there for five years is um, realizing that actually a real kind of penny drop moment for me is hmm, if you go in with more creative ideas and, and up through the CMO they see any change of relationship as being a creative refresh and therefore a good thing if you work through the CFO um, they see you as a strategic partner and any change of relationship is seen as some sort of admission that you've got you've made the wrong strategic you've started on the wrong strategic path. And so it's, it's, it doesn't happen. So in times of being able to have longer term relationships um, and also being able to understand what the levers are internally that a, a client organization can really pull on, um, having that relationship really helps. And up until that stage in my career, I'm rather embarrassed to say I didn't really have great relationships or look to make relationships even with the with the CFO of, of client organizations so that that was a real eye-opener for me and again some huge lessons learned so when Hudson Sandler was looking to um, effectively come out from under Huntsworth to do a management buyout I thought great I've learned new things but I'm, I'm still I'd like to knit it all together somehow um, and so that's when I was that's when the opportunity really arose to kind of go okay well maybe now's the time to do something on my own right. but having watched both of my parents run their own businesses being incredibly intelligent incredibly hardworking, and moving to a slightly smaller house every couple of years I was always terrified of of 
of running my own business. Um, so, but I'd really proved myself over the last kind of 20 odd years at that stage of, you know, being the one that's doing most of the commercial driving. And so I felt, I felt confident that I could do it. And I'm delighted to say that it's so far so good. Yeah. I don't know about you. I live in a state of, um, uh eternal uh, uh, eternal i know about paranoia is a bit a bit a bit um strong but you know what i mean you always have that slight fear it's all going to go wrong which sort of um keeps the energy levels up so to speak but i think that's healthy i think if you're looking for things to go wrong then you're then being able to to mitigate them yeah yeah and do you think you can ever work for anyone again is it, or once you, once you've done, once you've made that 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 plunge i mean maybe you know some, some sometimes you don't have any choice right but but on the on the face of it you you, you you're done with working for other people I work for other people right now, Ben. Um, we're an EOT, so I am the minority shareholder that I'm surrounded by my bosses every day. Brilliantly diplomatic as ever, Kirsty. Well done. Um, <laughs> now we'll come on to EOT in a minute because I definitely want to talk to you about that, especially with that that international element because it's it's an interesting conversation. But there's been you mentioned B Corp a moment, a moment ago. Um, let's start on a positive, right? Why did Milk and Honey decide it was important to become a B Corp? So one of the things that I wanted to do when um, when I kind of started the business was it was to take each of our values and then try and, and, and make them into something concrete because anybody can say that we're respectful. Anybody can say that we're collaborative, that we're loyal. How do you demonstrate it? And it's actually not the easiest thing to demonstrate. Um, and so, where, so every year we kind of take one of our values and we we look to really bring it to life. So the first year obviously was around energy and getting started and being seen as a hot one to watch and all of that good stuff. Um, then uh, then we started looking at respect and said, okay, well how do how do we bring that to life? And respect isn't just how you interact with people um, and how you talk to people. To my mind, it's also about respecting the community that you're part of, respecting the environment, respecting governance best practices, and holding yourself to high standards. And so we initially did the, the, the PRCA CMS, the um, Consultancy Management Standard, kind of very early on. And so we had that kind of um, slight in, uh, quality infrastructure in place, but I was looking to really say, okay, well, how do we demonstrate success? So I then, whilst looking for something to be able to kind of hook our wagon to, to understand what respect could look like, but also give us a, a plan, right? Give us a direction of what better looked like. I came across the B Corp movement and it just seemed to fit really beautifully because it looks at ethical, environmental and social responsibility. It looks at governance, it looks at workers, it looks at clients or customers and, and how, how, what best practice looks in all of those? I mean, to the point where there's about 530 different points that you need to go through. It's really, it's really quite comprehensive. But in each of those points, it shows you what better looks like. So it gave it gave us a kind of a, a, a progress path, which I which I was hugely drawn to. Um, now, B Corp in the UK, although it's been going for for some time now, actually was it was still. It was still really gathering momentum at the time. So we got our accreditation back in 2019. So it was two years after we started the business. Um, and it uh, it was quite quick right back then. So I think we were amongst the first 200, 250 um, businesses to be accredited. So I think the whole process took about five weeks, whereas now you can comfortably be waiting six weeks just to get an auditing slot. Sorry, six months. Six, right. 
Um, but it's been interesting. So it's been it's, it it got to the heart of of what you're trying to do with the business, and it was obviously yeah. useful. And it wasn't just a uh, a standard that you could you could position externally. It obviously had a, a role internally to help you improve things. Exactly, exactly. And unlike an ISO nine thousand or something, which you kind of get, you got the stamp, and it, you know it's almost like a qualification. You then go, you put it in the drawer, and off you go. This was this was a path to. The betterment which is what really really appeals and you know they keep changing right so you the, the scores that you get you as you progress through it keeps changing but as jurisdiction and regulation catches up the scores that they give to certain to certain um topic areas kind of also fluctuate so they keep you on your toes right and, and listen big cops clearly a force for good right it's and it's a it's something that's it's a positive. It's part of a positive movement, uh, and and it's important to say that when uh, and, and when things scale, it always becomes a bit more difficult, doesn't it? Because it's easier oh, when yes. when it's it's a bit more intimate and you've you've got more control. But as soon as things scale, um, it does become a little bit more difficult. How, how have you watched that 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 Habas Shell controversy um, through that sort of lens of, of B Corp? Have you have you been a bit disappointed with that? I mean, personally, I've been very disappointed with that because, you know, being part of the B Corp community is is a commitment to do better and to keep moving forward and to keep progressing. And so to get the accreditation um, and use it as a, a mitigating factor and then to continue to behave working with, I mean, you know, the Havas contract that they've got is for media buying. It's not. It's not that they're working with part of the organisation to help them do better or, or to help transfer over to clean energy. So that it's just my simplistic view of the world. It's just greedy, right? Um, and do you do you worry about the impact of that 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 controversy and potentially other controversies on 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 B Corp or it, do you think B Corp? No, will... I personally don't. I mean, generally as a as a, a way of viewing the world, I'm pretty optimistic. Um, I think again, me too, Kirsty. Me too. <laughs> but I I think that actually, if all of us try to do better, that's got to have a more positive impact on on the planet, on legislation, yeah. on how people behave, on what accepted norms are. That if you just work with the people that are absolutely getting it right, that's not gonna that's not gonna have a meaningful, scalable impact in quite the same way. So yes, of course, we're not always gonna get it right all the time, but I think it it's a it's a it's a map to better, um, and I think that's absolutely absolutely is a great thing. And it, it it what B Corp has done there is create uh, at least a, a degree of transparency in, in what's happening and, and some accountability, hasn't it? Um, so that's in that sense, you could argue um, that the fact that Havas were members of B Corp um, kind of kind of did, B Corp did its job a little bit to an extent. I think so. I think so. And also, again, Havas has now started to, you know, whilst they've made to my mind, and again, I don't know anybody internally, so I don't know what their decision-making was. That's a conversation to have with them. But to my mind, a kind of a, on the surface, quite a greedy decision there. Um, they're clearly opening their mind and thought process to what better can look like. So there's at least, I'm hoping, a balanced conversation that's happening internally. Yeah. 
Well, put it this way, if you're a, a big agency um, and you're a B Corp member, you're having watched that scenario, you're probably going to think twice, aren't you, before you're yeah. pitching against that sort of work again, which maybe that's uh, that's the sort of, you know, that, that's how that's how do things do evolve and change to an extent, isn't it? Um, yeah. Now, looking back over the last seven years since you started Milk and Honey, um, any regrets? Uh, well, regrets is diff is is in is an interesting phrase. I like to think that we either win or we learn. Uh, so I think that's, that's we, not what you said in the pre-show chat, Kirsty. So. <laughs> well, I do like to think that we always we either win or we learn. However, there's been loads of learnings. There's been loads of things that I've just got completely wrong. That have some have been quite costly, to be honest with you. So in the first instance, I wanted to be. I wanted to have a, a shared ownership just because, you know, I'm, I hope that I'm relatively self-aware and I need other people around me. I need to bounce ideas off people. I need, I enjoy working as part of a collective. Um, and so I thought, oh, well, perhaps the best way to do that is to set up as an LLP, as a limited liability partnership. That's got to be great because then people can come in as partners and they can, you know, they can share in the business and that's all going to be great. Mm, not so much. So it turns out that an LLP infrastructure is great if you want to have a few people as partners, but you either need to, but then the way that the, the tax and the legals work is, is, is a little bit more complicated. It's difficult to leave money in the business. Um, the partners end up then having to pay tax on all of the profits because you don't pay corporation tax. So the partners are liable themselves to pay money to pay tax on all of the profits, irrespective of whether you leave them in the business or not. So I got a horrible, horrible, unexpected tax bill, which I had to go had to go begging to the bank to get a new mortgage to cover. Right. Which was not OK. And I didn't take the money. I didn't take the money out. I left the money in the business um, and then got. Yeah, got a. Right. So so there's some business structure points there. And also have to, presumably trying to reverse your way out of that stuff is, is not always easy as well. Well, no, it's no. But um, and also more importantly, it just meant that people had to either buy in. And that, again, is only really accessible to more senior people. Um, but also, should they leave you, they've got to pay them out. And I thought, well, that's not really what I, that's not really what I want to do either, because it doesn't allow us to have control of our own destiny so much um so also, also with that i mean there's there's no perfect way right all these all these all these structures have advantages and disadvantages um but sometimes you you end up with people it, who, who who stay in the business who don't necessarily want to be there because it's it's a bit difficult for them to leave uh, and you know you so it's it can i've seen that over the years not not with milk and honey i'm suggesting but you you, you can end up with some some um people who who stay there for a long time and who are not necessarily um motivated as they as the perhaps they once were no i think that's absolutely fair so so in again exploring what better could look like there we came across the the eot the employee ownership trust model and again whilst that's been around since 2014 i think we were one of only first 500 companies in the uk to to convert so it was still relatively new um however the wonderful caroline over at circle clearly had had done it and so she was incredibly helpful and very generous with her learnings and insights um and so that was great so we chose to go that route and what i really liked about that is that everybody can be part of everyone can be part of it the 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 um 
or, or, or the employees. Just talk us through the um, the international element of that, because I think that's really interesting, because I, I had imagined that if you were going international, an EOT would be a little bit, you know, maybe off the table, but it's clearly not. Um, how, how does it work from an, from an international perspective, or does it frankly make no difference whatsoever? Uh, well, I believe it absolutely does. So the, the EOT model exists. No, sorry, when I, when I said doesn't make any, I meant legally. Does If someone's not in the UK, does it not matter from an EOT perspective? I, I, I didn't mean to suggest it wasn't, it doesn't, you know, it didn't work. So the um, the EOT is a is a UK legal construct. And so um, we have a couple of companies here in the, in the UK. So uh, we have, we started off with, with milk and honey, obviously. Um, and then as we, um, but to make milk and honey work in the first instance, um, because it was an LLP and it was basically me and me, I had me as a corporation, which is now called Hive Group, Hive PR Group, and me as an individual. That's how I kind of got around the partnership piece. And then as other people came in, then we were able to, to restructure that. So what we've then done is we've made Hive PR Group effectively the investment vehicle. So as we've opened in new geographies, it's Hive that uh, that co-owns. So Hive owns 100% of, of UK. It owns 51% of the US. It owns 75% uh, of Singapore and 74% of Germany. And then Hive Group um, is 45% owned by me and 55% owned by the EOT. And the EOT then sits above Hive Group. So they own everything. Right. So what's quite, so the way that I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that we were being collaborative, that we were rewarding loyalty and that we were encouraging the teams to work together irrespective of, of which geography they sit in and which team they sit in. So the only P&Ls that exist are, are the geographic ones. And that's because they're separate legal entities in each geography and I wanted them to be separate legal entities in case there was some sort of legal situation so that it, you know it's there's no dominant there's no potential domino effect um so that way around the local um leader has the equity in the local business to make sure that that's being driven forward but then und then around them the the their team owns everything and so again it makes sure that we're you know, they get paid on 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 the success of the group. So that encourages you to go, OK, well, I'm not going to keep this activity just in, I don't know, in France. We don't have France, but, you know, in just so it's not to pick on anyone in in country A, um, <clears throat> because it doesn't suit us. Yeah, you know, actually, if the most qualified person to do that piece of work is in country B, then let's make sure that we're working with them. Yeah, and, and so, you, all, you all go up and down together in essence, which is a good a good thing from a team exactly. perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then and then the shares are held in trust, and so they're not allocated per person; they're held in trust. And then the, it's very very simple to manage and to administer. There's there's very little paperwork. If you've been with for us, we chose um, the kind of qualifying period to be twelve months, which is the longest it can be. So if you've been with the company for twelve months, you automatically become a member of the EOT, um, and then uh, you get, well, in the UK, you get tax-free um, profit share up to 3,600. Obviously, in other jurisdictions, that, that doesn't exist. So, unfortunately, that is a kind of a UK-specific piece. But also, more importantly, you, as the as a membership group of the, of the largest shareholder, um, can 
you know, you have to sign off on all the plans. You can undo decisions. Um, so that way around it kind of keeps us honest. It makes us make decisions for the good of the many, not for the few. Um, and it makes sure that everybody's voice is heard and, and they pep up because they're the boss. And if people leave, it's, it's pretty clean. You know, you, you just... If, so if people leave, there's, again, because there's no paperwork going in, there's no paperwork coming out. So if you are employed, even if you're on a PIP or you're, you know, you're on you're on your, um, you know, your kind of, what do you call it, when you're leaving? P45? No, your... Um, notice period. Thank you. Oh, gotcha. my God. Menopausal brain. Not fun. So even if you're on your notice period, if you are employed at the time when payouts go out, then, you, you know, it's it's super it's super easy. You're either in or you're out. Right. You don't buy in so you don't get paid out. But once you're in, you've got all the benefits of being in. Right. Um, now, we're almost out of time. Just um, one of the things I love about this podcast is that it's it's kind of got this little community around um, PR startup entrepreneurs, some of, some of which you've taken the plunge and, and some of whom I've no doubt are thinking about it. Um, so I always like to ask any, any what advice have you got? You know, your top top three bits of advice maybe for um, anyone out there who's thinking of um, of setting up their own PR firm. Um really think about your business plan and think about your point of differentiation because you know as we all know there are thousands of pr agencies so you need to stand out and then our community is super generous super generous people will happily give you their time and sit down and share some learnings um so take advantage of that and for god's sake being a good pr person is not the same as being a good business owner do the commercials get that right um and and where in terms of doing the commercials right if you don't know how to do it you don't know how to do it so you need to go and learn how to do it right yeah you need to learn how to do it or you need to have um somebody that you could have potentially as a, a non-exec director so you're not somebody that's there all the time for you but that you can really lean on um and for god's sake get qualified people yeah um absolutely and get a good bit get a good bookkeeper that's my other bit of advice um yeah. Kirsty Leighton, founder and group CEO of Milk and Honey. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Gorgeous to speak to you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.